people who like to believe in bad luck and gemstones, it wasn't a hard stretch to say, well, look at all these terrible things that happened to this wealthy lady. Clearly, it was this diamond. And so the stories of the curse, the stories of the bad luck diamond got built one upon the other. And of course, every time a story about a curse is retold, it gets just a little bit better. I had a, a client years ago and I was living in California and she came to me for an amethyst because she said she'd been sleeping with this amethyst and she slept with it under her pillow and then she needed something to wear during the day because it was too cumbersome to carry it around in her purse. So we made an amethyst stone, quite typical of that kind of story. She wouldn't never go out without that stone anymore. If she was without it, she probably would go back home and get it. Welcome to If Jewels Could Talk. I'm Carol Walton, the voice of jewellery, an author, broadcaster, and the woman who initiated the role of jewellery editor at magazines like Tatler and British Vogue. This is a podcast for everyone, for people who do like jewellery, for people who don't realise they like jewellery, and anyone intrigued by fascinating facts, new ideas, and forgotten histories. So please join me as I tell sparkly tales, meeting all sorts of people, delving into four centuries of jewellery culture and investigate what's happening now. Jewellery has answered the human need for self-adornment from the beginning, originally in the form of shells, feathers and bones, as well as coloured pebbles. Stones have a rich cultural history of legend and lore dating back beyond recorded history. Their rarity and beauty meant they were used decoratively as well as for amuletic purposes to protect and ward off evil. Stones carried an aura of good health, wisdom and success in love. On the flip side, though, there were superstitions and curses that haven't faded with time. Indeed, we seem to hold on to primitive stories, passing them along like dark fairy tales, serving some superstitious need. Does this add or detract from the allure of a stone? We're going to discuss this topic today, and I'm delighted to have Dr. Geoffrey Post, mineralogist and curator in charge of gems and minerals at the Smithsonian Museum, which includes the infamous Hope Diamond, and British jewellery designer Stephen Webster, known for his bold and opulent use of coloured stones, who as the original rock and roll jeweller has created jewels for a vast array of famous fingers who have a chequered history of love and luck. Hello, Jeffrey. Hello. You look like you're in the Smithsonian Museum. I wish I was in the Smithsonian Museum, but uh, like much of the world, I guess we've been working at home for the past year. I get into the museum maybe once every three or four weeks mostly to check on the collections and pick up a few more things to work on. And I end up walking through some dark hallways and I see a couple of security people and that's pretty much all I see when I'm there. So we're really hoping that by this summer, we'll start to see visitors back in the museum again. So is it a good opportunity to clean everything and dust it down? Well, ironically, the last week of February last year, just before we shut down, we actually closed our gem mineral galleries for a week, and everyone in our department spent all day, every day for that week, cleaning all of our exhibit cases. We opened everything, we cleaned everything off, we took all the dust out, we put in new light bulbs, 
it looked stunning. And then the next week we closed down. <laughs> so as far as I can tell, we're hoping all of those clean cases have stayed clean this past year. And whenever we finally do reopen, people will be able to come back into a very nice and clean and well-lit exhibit hall. Hello, Stephen. Hello, Carol. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. And where are you? I'm in my studio in Mayfair in London. And uh, a bit like the, uh, the Smithsonian, it's very quiet <laughs> and, uh, and clean out there, actually. Yeah, yeah. So sharing some similarities, but equally looking forward to some life returning to these streets. Well, we're going to have a little chat today about the hidden meanings associated with gemstones and particularly with superstitions and curses and what it is that attracts us to particular stones. It could be the good, the good luck, the charm, but equally it can be the, the legend and the curse that's on it. And Jeffrey, I wanted to say to you, when you're going out, say at the Tucson Gem Fair, and you're looking to add particular minerals or specimens to the collection, what is it that attracts you? What do you look for in a stone? Well, that's, uh, there, there, there's so many different things, right? When we're going out to Tucson, it's always with a lot of excitement that you know, we always have a list of things that we'd like to find, things that we'd like to fill in gaps in the collection or that we've heard about or that we've just always dreamed about. But then the reality is when you get there, there are all kinds of things that gems, minerals that we just hadn't even imagined that have come out of the ground or have appeared in the past year or two or just reappeared. And so we're always being confronted with, with new things we had never imagined. And so we're always looking to add uh, gems or minerals that have a story. We have a big public that comes into our galleries and they love to see something beautiful, but more than that, they love to see something interesting. And so something that's come out of the earth that has a story, either because it's a great natural history or geology story, or because there's a human story wrapped in with that geology story. So we're always looking for something that's a little different, new, something that we can use to tell a story about, or something that's just a great treasure of the earth, the kinds of things that maybe most of us would only have a chance to see because they're in a collection like the one at the Smithsonian or because we've been to the Tucson Gem and Mineral Show and we want to share that with the rest of the world. So anything that's really unique, really interesting, really beautiful, all of those are things we're looking for. I think when I saw you at the Tucson Gem Show, you were looking at the biggest piece of turquoise that had ever come out of the ground. <laughs> Well, of course, being the Smithsonian, we're always looking for whatever people are saying is the biggest and the best. And I think the the time that we were looking at that turquoise, at least the miner was claiming this may be the largest piece of turquoise that had ever been pulled out of any mine in one large piece. And it was pretty impressive. I am not sure in the end how much of that was turquoise that could ever be used for jewelry, but it was a very impressive specimen. And we did. We ended up not acquiring that because we just didn't have a good place to put it. But it is the kind of thing that you only see when you go to a few of these shows like Tucson, where people tend to bring what they consider to be the biggest, the best, the most unusual. And that turquoise certainly qualified. It was big. It was impressive. Unfortunately, just not something that was some, that we could easily take home with us. Do you ever get a feeling like a? a you know, people talk about bad vibes. Do you ever look at a stone and there's something inexplicable? You can't put your finger on it, but you don't get a good feeling. Uh, usually that happens when I see the price tag. <laughs> 
know, and there are all kinds of emotions, I guess, when we see various, and, and clearly, you know, I think none of us would be in this business, and certainly those of us from the museum who are going to places like Tucson or other shows, um, we wouldn't be in this business if we didn't feel some emotion when we saw these things. And in many cases, it's just awe, it's wonder, it's just, oh my gosh, I never would have imagined something like this. But there are times you see something and you go, you know, it's rare, it's unusual, it's impressive, but for some reason this just isn't quite Right. And sometimes you wonder because if the story's not right with it, sometimes it's because it's just not looking like what you imagined this should be, or perhaps uh, there's just a total blank behind it in terms of a story, and that is a little bit of a red flag for us. So, yeah, there, there are times that we see something that, you know, if everything fell into place, we might say, yeah, this is the right thing for the collection. But I'm out there with two or three colleagues always. And one of the things we've always agreed on is that we will acquire important new things for the collection only if it's by consensus. And so it has to really feel right for all of us. And there have been times when two out of three of us are just absolutely bowled over by something. And the third person's going, you know, this just isn't quite what we need or quite right or I don't feel good about it. And in the end, we pass on it then because we just weren't all on the same page. And so... Yeah, so it's you never quite know when that when it's all going to work for everybody. And Stephen, when you're there, obviously you're looking to buy with a completely different eye because you're looking for things either for particular clients or things you want for new collections. So how does that change your view of what you're looking as you look at a stone? Well, I think um, predominantly with Tucson, I try to not have a shopping list. Um, it's so annoying to go there with a shopping list because, I mean, we've already been talked through the way the Smithsonian looks at Tucson and I, and I feel there's not too much separation there. I, I, you know, you've got the show that goes on, which you've seen, where you've just got the spectacle of the, the biggest things that have come out of the earth and you can't not be in awe of them. It doesn't matter if you're shopping for them or not. You just, you need to do that. It's like going through a cathedral of quartz and and agate and things. And then and then there's the this sort of I go to expect the unexpected. You know, I'm I'm looking for something that's um it may be quite modest in a gem world. You know, it's not about high value, it's not about anything that necessarily a client is going to immediately sort of respond to. It's it's the way that I can then take that and and um and by the way I cut it or or mount it, whatever I'm going to do with it, give it the sort of the extra part of the journey. You know, the first part's been done. It's come out of the earth and it's it's in front of me in that state. And then the next bit's sort of my job as a jeweler. So my my sort of um, whenever I go, I do I do have to shop because you can't avoid it. But I like to sort of just wander around and be awe inspired which I've been doing at that show since 1983. So <laughs> it's been some, I feel like I'm one of, the, one of the fossils that turn up there every year, definitely. Uh, may, maybe, that's, uh, maybe that's part of it. <laughs> Are your clients um, interested with tales that come with it, with stories, with ancient legends? Yeah, of course they are. I mean, Jeffrey is absolutely right. I think whether it's in a you know, an exhibit or, or you're wearing it on your finger or, or a brooch or something, people, they will continue your story. If you tell someone a story, they don't just say, oh, yeah, right, and then walk out and forget it. 
they'll, they'll retell it. And, and I suppose that's, um, you know, part of what being a jeweller is. It's, you, you know, everybody says it, but it's true. You've got to be sort of the storyteller. And, and, um, and, you know, whether that's something that's just because a piece is completely unique, it could be a freak within its, you know, family. It could be that, which I love. You know, I mean, I spend a lot of time looking for things that are an unexpected colour of a sapphire or or a garnet or anything that turns up in, in a sort of a, a whole spectrum of colours. I'm, I'm always looking for the one that you're not expecting. And, and then that gives me the start of a story. So, so that's sort of one way of storytelling. I suppose you're, you're also asking the question about um, a sort of a myth. Um, you know, do I look for things with a myth? <laughs> a myth is it's like Scotch myth, isn't it? It's, uh, it, it, it feels a bit like the power of the person who wants to believe it. That's, that's what I feel. And I, I'm never going to be the person to dismiss these myths and legends um, because otherwise you're destroying the romance of, of what jewellery is. Um, but, but what's lucky to one person is definitely unlucky to somebody else. So it's quite difficult to keep on top of all that. You just sort of go with the flow a little bit rather than sort of selling the legend. So where do you think they come from, Geoffrey, these legends? Are they um, just hearsay, old wives' tales, um, early mentions in old ancient texts? Where do you think they come from? Uh, Carol, they come from all of those places. And in fact, sometimes they come from the jeweler that is trying to sell the stone, and sometimes they come from the, the legitimate history of the stone. I mean, one of the things about gems that I think really does set them apart, certainly from most of the objects we have in our museum, for example, is their sense of timeless, the sense that they go on forever. I mean, you know, a gemstone is something that isn't diminished with time. And so there is a sense of permanency, and I think that's part of the fascination that we have for gems, that they're not something that's going to just gradually diminish with time or gradually just erode away. Or, you know, Once you have that stone in your hand, there's this feeling like, where's it been? Because it is something that feels so permanent, that feels so forever. You know, so where has it been? Where is it going? And so I think it just begs the sense of a story because you've got something that's been around so long that there must be a story, even if the story is how it came out of the earth. But as we know, many of, you know, gems for basically the history of human beings um, have been something that have stood out as being special because they're shiny, because they're very hard, they're very permanent, they're a sense of a future to them. And they've often been associated with wealthy people, with interesting people, with powerful people. And so because we've got that sense or that, that association, I think, in our, our own psyche, we always, the first thing we see a gemstone, you want to go, well, who owned this? You know, where, where did this come from? You know, what's the story behind it? And then more than that, we try to, you know, at the museum, we're always trying to encourage people to think about, well, as you know, just their being here now is part of their story. And what's that story going to be in the future? You know, 100 years from now, 500 years from now, 1,000 years from now, whether the museum is here or whether, you know, any of our descendants are around, the gemstone will almost undoubtedly be around, will, will have survived. And so part of the fun is not just thinking about where the story has been, but where the story is going. And so I think all of these things are what add on. And, you know, every time I probably am out there talking to visitors in the gallery and we're talking about a gemstone, we're adding on to that story right then and there because they're going to go home and tell it and 
probably it doesn't get told exactly the same way twice. Yeah, I guess that's how old wives' tales start, don't they? It's word of mouth, it's folklore, and it gets embellished as it goes along. Well, and I think we all like to tell a story. I mean, what fun is it to wear a piece of jewellery that doesn't have a story, right? I mean, you know, when someone is sporting a, a new ring or a brooch or whatever it is, I mean, invariably, it's funny, over and over, you see people, and when someone's admiring a piece of jewellery, almost the next phrase out of their mouth is, so uh, what's, you know, what's the story behind it? What's the story behind this piece? And it may just simply be, well, who made it? Did Stephen Webster make it? Or where did you buy it? Or, you know, why did you buy it? I mean, all these things become part of that story. But I think what we're really hoping is there's even more to that. There's even more of a story behind there, and we want to hear what that story is. Well, if we're talking about stories and we're talking about bad luck, we have to talk about the biggest blue diamond in the world, the most visited and the most cursed, the hope. And um, Jeffrey, can you give us a little potted history um, for people who don't know about the Hope Diamond? Sure. So as you say, Carol, the Hope Diamond is our most famous gem in the National Collection of the Smithsonian and is probably the most visited object in our museum on a day-by-day basis. And so you always have to kind of wonder, well, what is it that makes that gemstone so interesting to so many people? And it's as we've been talking about, it's, it's mostly the stories, because when most people see the diamond, they see a blue diamond that's one inch in diameter, and frankly, probably is a bit of a disappointment because most people are expecting something much bigger, and most people haven't thought about blue diamonds before, so the whole thing is a little bit puzzling to them. But it's when you get into the story that it becomes interesting to people. And, you know, it's it's a diamond that we know a fair bit about, ironically, because it's a blue diamond. And so it's pretty hard to lose a blue diamond in history because, as you mentioned, it's the largest blue diamond that we know of in terms of its very gem-quality blue diamond. So it's always been rare, always been unusual, and so people tend to write about it or talk about it. And so we can follow its history back probably better than we can most other diamonds because of its color and its rarity. So we know it's a diamond that came out of India. It was sold to King Louis XIV in France in 1669. He had it recut, became a diamond that was part of the French crown jewels. It was stolen during the French Revolution. That diamond was never seen again. Well, interestingly, 20 years later, a diamond ends up, a blue diamond comes up for sale in London in 1812. And with no history behind it, just this new blue diamond being offered for sale. Well, being a blue diamond, people wrote about it. And so it eventually ends up in the collection of Henry Philip Hope. That's where the name comes from. It stays in his family, eventually is sold. Pierre Cartier ends up with the diamond and sells it in 1911 to Evelyn Walsh McLean, who's a wealthy socialite that lives in Washington, D.C. area. And it becomes kind of her symbol. She wears it everywhere. And it's about this same time, for the first time in this long history, that there's any mention of this diamond being bad luck. And so clearly it's a, a fairly recent addition to the story and seems to have come about at the time when the diamond was being offered for sale. And so I think there's a pretty good chance that those stories, if not completely made up, were very much accentuated and retold and retold at the time the diamond was changing hands and being sold. And so Evelyn Walsh McLean herself liked to tell the story. She liked to tell people that things that were bad luck for other people were good luck for her. And so she bought this diamond and wore it proudly and loved to tell the story about the curse on it and all that. Well, it turns out she herself had a number of unfortunate things happen in her life. You know, despite all of her wealth, I mean, she had a son that was killed at an early age in an automobile accident. 
She had a daughter that committed suicide. She had a husband that ended up in an insane asylum. And so for people who like to believe in bad luck and gemstones, it wasn't a hard stretch to say, well, look at all these terrible things that happened to this wealthy lady. You know, clearly it was this diamond. And so the stories of the curse, the stories of the bad luck diamond got built one upon the other. And of course, every time a story about a curse is retold, it gets just a little bit better. And so now for a lot of people coming into the museum, it is the part of the story that they've heard about. What is the story? You know, what is this bad luck diamond? What's the curse? But ironically, in its 300 years of history that we know, it's only been in the last 100 years or so that there's been any talk about the diamond being bad luck. So you don't feel that the French, the French part of the um, revolution and guillotine added to the bad luck? Well, you know, if you take anything, right, pick an object, you know, pick a spoon, pick an ashtray, pick a vase. And if you follow its history far enough back, if you have something that's got a 300-year history and you want to start looking at everybody who was connected to it, you can always find a few people here and there that had some bad things happen in their life. And if you want to pick on those things, you can put together a history of bad luck for almost anything that's got a history to it. And I think with the Hope Diamond, it's a little bit the same way. Evelyn Walsh-McLean did have the stone blessed in a church when she bought it after Pierre Cartier um, tempted her, really, beyond... She was um, the kind of woman, woman after my own heart, actually, because if she didn't have all her jewellery on, her family called the doctor and said there must be something wrong with her. She hasn't got her jewellery on. Clearly, you know, she, she was a great entertainer, one of the really well-known characters. And everybody, you know, she, she herself prided, her, was pr- prided herself in being quite a character. And so, yes, wearing her jewellery was part of her image. There's no doubt about, doubt about that. In fact, it's hard to find a picture of her. And she was pretty well photographed because she was pretty well-known not wearing the Hope Diamond and many of her other jewels at the same time. And so, yes, when she bought the Hope Diamond, you know, she was fascinated by the diamond. She truly felt that it was a diamond that would be a lucky diamond for her. But then as people talked and as, you know, a few things happened in her life, just to make sure, just to hedge her bets, she did take it to a local church and she had the diamond blessed. She figured, you know, why why not, you know, why, why tempt fate? And so she did that. But of course, that became part of her story too. And so it's not clear how much of it she truly believed or how much of it became part of the story that she liked to tell. She was obviously fatalistic because she said, she put the chain around her neck and hooked my life to its destiny for good or evil. So she obviously gave it up and thought what's going to happen is going to happen. But then after that, Harry Winston had it as part of the Court of Jewels that travelled around the US. And then he donated it to to you at the Smithsonian and um, very famously put it in um, just the ordinary registered mail to send it to you. (laughs) Yeah, well, Harry Winston was a bit of a showman, right? You know, he couldn't just quietly come down the train and drop off the Hope Diamond. So you know, what better way than to put it in the mail, insure it for a million dollars, and have it delivered by post the next day to all these waiting people in the gem gallery at the Natural History Museum. And so it was it was quite a spectacle, but, but clearly it caught people's attention and clearly got people excited. And, you know, for us, we've always said the Hope Diamond arriving at the Smithsonian is probably one of the biggest bits of good luck that's happened to us in the history of the museum. Because, in the first year the museum was there, the attendance more than doubled. 
And it really put us on the map as a destination, as a place for people to come. It was like the Mona Lisa at the Louvre. Suddenly, everybody coming to Washington wanted to see the White House and the Capitol and the Hope Diamond. It was a bit controversial. You know, at the time when the diamond arrived, there were people who wrote letters and said, hey, you know, this is bad luck. You know, you just think what's going to happen to the country if the country now owns the Hope Diamond. But some of those same people offered then to take it off our hands to, to help avoid the country from having to deal with this bad luck. I was thinking about um, some of the, the stories about bad luck and curses. And for instance, like with the, with the Hope, when um, there's conjecture that originally it was stolen from a temple in its sort of early history. And Stephen, I wanted to ask you that um, I guess if snatching these big stones or wherever they were taken from originally, whether it was temples or from idols, do you think that's because it's involved snatching war, there have been these tales as it's moved from continent to continent and stories of greed bound up in it. Do you think that is some of the, the, the history of bad luck that accompanies them? Oh, yeah, without a doubt. You know, I mean, I'm not so much of the expert as uh, yourself and and Jeffrey actually, but I think with the the sort of the few that I'm familiar with, um, you know, Connie Nor being one, you know, I'm sat in the garage building here, and they they have a, a connection with that stone, and uh, you know, right, it's it's a very much like I suppose the hope, you know, from from the moment it leaves its country of origin. The perils set in, you know, and it doesn't matter if there's cholera on the ship or a massive storm, whatever it is, it all gets blamed on the fact that the cargo, being the Connie Nor in this case, is uh, the curse. And, um, and then it never stops there, does it really? It's always uh, a series of unfortunate events that, that start to just um, originate because of uh, surrounding this, this gem. And I, I suppose there's probably... For, for anything that was mined long enough ago and has come to wherever it is right now, there will be a journey. And it can be from colonialism, you know, like with the, the Connie Nor, and I suppose most actually is going to be sort of pillaged somewhere along the line. Someone's going to say that this belongs somewhere else. I think for the, the relief of the British, I think in 2016 it was declared that the Connie Nor was a gift. And it wasn't just stolen, so I'm sure we can all sleep better at night knowing that. But people still <laughs> ask for it to go back to India, don't they? Yeah, I know, exactly. But, but I don't think it's going anywhere, personally. But but that was declared in 2016, so um, who knows? Actually, we would volunteer to be the neutral party. It could actually come to the uh, Smithsonian and just be in this neutral setting, and we could exhibit it there. That would, so we're happy to solve that problem. Okay, I wish I wish I had some influence there, <laughs> but I I think um, you've said it already, Jeffrey. The value, it's the value, it's the age, it's the mystery, everything that surrounds these priceless gems. Because let's face it, we're talking about priceless. We're not even talking about things that you could insure anymore because they're priceless, and I, and I think they're going to be surrounded by something. It would be awful if you turned up 
at the Tower of London, all the Smithsonian say, can you tell us about the Star of India? I say, oh, well, there's not much to tell. <laughs> that would that would be <laughs> an awful <laughs> visit, wouldn't it? So, so everything's going to have a massive story around it. Um, quite rightly, I guess. I, I think with with those with those high value stones, we we all want it. it would be terrible if we if we Googled them and there was nothing there. I think on on uh, more latter day, uh, you know, more modest gems. Like we, we've suggested already, I mean, you and I both have said, uh, some, somewhere along the line, you know, it's um, still as old. You know, most gems, you could say, well, there's not, there's not that many that are young gems. It's just when they surfaced is when the story starts. So in, in theory, everything's got the same sort of longevity. And then it's about how long it's been out and about and its associations the people that have owned it, these are what give it a legend. But the stone you're talking about, the Koh i Noor, Stephen, that was taken from India under, um, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> arguable circumstances, and it um, was cut by Prince Albert, put into Queen Victoria's collection. But the curse, allegedly, is that um, it's a very bad curse for any male who wears it. So do you think that the royal family are sentient of this because actually it's only the female members who wear it? Do you think they're aware of the curse? I mean, do, I don't even think male members of the royal family get a look in, do they? I mean, it's, it's something that's, that's to be avoided. <laughs> Probably best left alone. You wouldn't want to test the curse like that, would you? You wouldn't want to be the first man to say, OK, let's change this and uh, I'll go for it. I'll volunteer. I don't know what more to say, to be honest. Well, you it's, think of um, the women who've worn it, Queen Victoria, our own Queen yeah. Elizabeth II. Yeah. They've had very long and successful reigns. So. They do, absolutely. And I think long, that, let that be the case, I think. Um, there's got to be something else that the men can wear. <laughs> <laughs> well, when... Um, do, do you believe in bad karma of stones, Stephen? Um, oh, you know... I said a bit earlier, you know, if somebody comes to me, and I've had a few, I've had people who have said to me, you know, I've been told by my, either my spiritual guru, my doctor, my friends, I should be wearing this type of stone. I'm certainly not going to tell them that, you know, oh no, you know, I don't think you should wear that kind of stone because they've, I don't have any reason why someone shouldn't wear a type of a stone. But people do have that belief, and, and I think that's, that's quite a powerful thing. And, you know, I've, I had a, a client years ago, and I was living in California, and she, she came to me for an amethyst because she said she'd been sleeping with this amethyst. It was like a, a, a piece of the quartz, so the amethyst, as, as it grows, its natural kind of way it grows, so um, like an obelisk sort of shape. And she slept with it under a pillow, for years, for protection. I mean, I don't know. Anyway, I'm going to go with that story. That's what she told me. And uh, and then she needed something to wear during the day because it was too cumbersome to carry it around in her purse. So we made an amethyst stone, um, quite typical of that kind of story. She wouldn't never go out without that stone anymore. That was it for her. And, and, you know, it, it's, if she was without it, she probably would go back home and get it, like people do about anything that's an amulet. 
and and uh, so that, you know this being an amethyst. So I, I feel that it's within the power of the person who's wearing it. This belief that that it's whatever its magic is, um, rather than me sort of feeling I can feel it emanating for a gem. I, I, I wish I could say I did, I don't. Gems speak to me in a different way. And that will be much more about how I see this piece in a piece of jewellery that I've, you know, got something to do with the creation of. And uh, and that, that happens, that really does happen. You know, I think you and I have been going around gem hunting before. And if I see something, I can't stop thinking about it. So it, that's obviously got some power in that respect. But in your time, you have made a lot of engagement rings for pretty high-profile celebrities, you know, Madonna, Christina Aguilera, for instance. And you might be the king of the divorce ring, actually, because a lot of those <laughs> marriages have not worked out. Now, I don't think it's the design, Stephen, but do you think that those stones that come uh, are subject to a broken relationship, would they carry a bad karma with them? Do you mind if I speak to my PR woman at this point? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I might put my foot in it here. Yeah, um... Well, okay. Everything you've said is true. I could well be the king of divorce, but I'd like to know anybody who's been in the jewellery business. I've been in the jewellery business for 45 years who hasn't got a string of, uh, of um, it doesn't matter if they're high profile or not, but I think let's say an average marriage lasts so 50% in divorce. Let's just say it's going to be about 50-50. If you add into that the high-profile nature, certainly of the people you've just spoken about, there's a whole different set of pressures on there. And very, very few high-profile celebrity weddings go the course. So I, I'm going to defend myself in that respect. <laughs> and and uh, I think if you marry Madonna and you've got a 10 years under your belt, that's not bad going. So I, I'm going to look at it as a success story rather than a curse. <laughs> <laughs> Some last a lot less. But those stones, then, would those carry the feeling of the breakup with them? Yeah, it's very interesting, that one, because we're, we're, I would say, historically, if you offered somebody a divorce diamond, <laughs> as let's just say, this is a goodbye <laughs> for a reason, possibly for a reason. You may well get that pushback. You, you may, I'm just to say. But, but nowadays, and this is, this is absolutely a shift, I believe, that there's people who are younger people embracing the journey that, that, that Stones have. And, I mean, it's definitely something that's, that's happening in America and it's this sort of, you know, pre-loved, pre-owned, whatever you want to call it. It could be the same in fashion. It's the same in jewellery. I'm seeing this. And not, not just presented in a, oh, this is second hand. You know, this is, this is part of the cycle of, of jewellery that it, that it can way outlive, you know, any owner. And so I, I think that we may be in a moment where perhaps the superstition is less important than, than the possible positive-ness uh, that could surround something that's been 
pre-owned. I think if you think about family jewels, you know, as we know, they get handed down. It's, it's an heirloom. It's, it's what the term was probably invented for. And I think you, you might see that that's now extending beyond family. I, I believe that as a, as a quite modern shift. So, for instance, um, as we were, you were talking that you're in the office at Garrard, um, the Duchess of Cambridge's engagement ring, we know, came from Garrard for the Princess of Wales. And obviously that has elements of tragedy to that story. Um, were you of the mind that the Duchess of Cambridge should happily wear it? Or do you think she should have maybe practiced Reiki on it to get rid of some of that... <laughs> That bad, bad story. <laughs> I think if you get married by the Archbishop of Canterbury, that covers everything. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely think that's a that's a blessing. I don't, I don't even want to say a blessing in disguise. I think it's a blessing dressed as the Archbishop of Canterbury, and uh, of course she should wear that ring. I I feel that that's in equal measure a ring that's um, on its journey. Let's face it, because it only really started with Charles and Diana. It's, um, it's probably got a long way to go. And let's hope that, that it's um, got a lot more positiveness around it than negativity. And I suppose that's most stones for have a dark side and the flip side is the good side. Have you got any um, stones in the collection, Geoffrey, there that have are associated with good luck for the wearer or good luck for the person who found it? Well, I, I think, you know, when you look at a number of the stones, the jewelry that they're in, um, that we've been, that we have in the collection, I would say that many of the people who owned and wore those felt pretty much like they had a lot of good luck going for them. I mean, based on some of the stories, it certainly gave them a lot of pleasure. And I think of Marjorie Merriweather Post, and we have a number of pieces that came into the collection from her. Everything, many of them were historic pieces that she bought from Harry Winston and others, things like the Napoleon diamond necklace or um, the diadem that Empress Marie Louise had, clearly enjoyed wearing them. You know, she's had portraits with her wearing these pieces. You know, we see pictures of her at great balls and celebrations and became part of defining her image. And fortunately, she decided that most of these should be in a place where people could also enjoy them, and that's how they've ended up in our collections. Have you documented those stones in your new book? That was the sort of my pandemic project, was to uh, take the time to try to put together a lot of the stories. As we, you know, I've been with the collection now for over 35 years, and as we see the collection grow, you realize that it's not just a collection of the pieces of jewelry or the gemstones or the minerals. Each of these pieces has come into the collection with a story. So we've put a lot of research into learning about these. We put them together in a book. It's called Unearthed. It's called the Smithsonian National Gem Collection, The Surprising Stories Behind the Jewels. Ironically, for some people, one of the real incentives for them to donate things to our collection was this sense of immortality that giving a gemstone gave them. You know, when that gem comes into our collection with their name associated with it, it'll always be that way. So the gemstone becomes sort of a portal into the story of the person who owned it, who gave it. Any story going to rival the hopes? One of my favorites. I don't know how many people today have ever heard of Peggy Hopkins Joyce. Well, she was one of the Ziegfeld Follies girls in New York. 
and she arrived in New York about the same time as there was this explosion in tabloid newspapers, and they were all looking for stories, and she loved to tell a story. Well, she became the, the much-divorced, the much-married um, uh, Peggy Hopkins Joyce. She claimed in her lifetime she was engaged at least 50 times, and all of these stories became front-page news in all these tabloids. And so, you know, women in the 1920s, you know, life was still pretty conservative for most women, pretty sheltered. And so there were all these women sort of living vicariously through the stories of Peggy Hopkins Joyce playing out on the front pages of all these tabloids. But because she married many times, she ended up with quite a gem collection. And one day in 1928, she went into Black Star and Frost and traded a necklace of pearls that she had just gotten in one of her divorce settlements for this large diamond. And it's the diamond we now have in our collection. It's our largest faceted diamond, 127 carats. And at the time, it was considered to be the largest diamond in private hands. And so she bought this and wore it as a choker. It became known in the New York tabloids as Peggy's skating rink. But, you know, so as well known as she was, when you're living that kind of a lifestyle, when your fame sort of depends on all of that kind of excitement in your life and her, her beauty, um, it doesn't last forever. And, you know, it, there's kind of an interesting story that, that she wrote. It was actually in uh, Vanity Fair magazine. And she said, you know, there's going to come a time when no one's going to remember who I am. But she said, the one thing that they will remember is they'll remember this big diamond that I owned. And so now, because of this diamond in our collection, you know, her story essentially will be known forever. So she's a really fascinating lady, just absolutely amazing lady, somebody you'd love to have had dinner with, you know, somebody you'd love to spend an evening with because... She was anything but dull. She foresaw her future, that the diamond would put her into people's imaginations forever. There's another stone, actually, that intrigues me, which is the opal. Um, and I loved how um, the Roman scholar Pliny the Elder always described it, that it um, rivaled the colours of the, all the painters, all the colours that painters used came out of the opal. But they do have a bad rap as being a bad luck. Um, Stephen, why is that? Why do you think that opals get a bad rap? Well, I thought it was because of the nature of an opal. So it, it's, um, you know, the way that it's formed. It's got a lot of water in it. It can dry out. It can craze. So therefore, your valuable stone can be pretty much deemed worthless if you sort of keep it by the radiator or in not in the right sort of humidity. So that, that was kind of my understanding. But then it appears that it's picked up some, of course, like everything, I guess, picked up some other sort of legends that are probably, uh, I think it was Sir Walter Scott had written a book about um, an opal that, that uh, some dignitary had and... And it was serialised. The book was, you'll probably know this story, Carol. I don't know so much, but it was serialised. And before the end of the book, because it was serialised, um, there was an, a moment in it when it appeared that the opal had given this wearer all this bad luck, as it was, I think, in the end, she died of cholera or something, because everybody did anyway. But, but it, so, so, but from that, it picked up another load of bad luck, which is typical of the way it works. But um, it is a funny one. I do get asked it, I think, more than almost any other gem, so more than even an emerald, because emeralds can be considered bad luck. Again, I thought probably because... There's a fragility to both those stones. 
you know, in some ways they're, you know, high value, but, but could easily be broken and therefore you've lost the value. Um, I'm not so sure. I think it probably is an element of that. And then it's an element of all the other stuff that's myth. I love opals. I think they're incredible. I love the fact that the uncut gem film <laughs> was, was inspired by an opal and not what you'd imagine because you always think it probably should be a film about a diamond or a ruby or anything other than an opal. But the fact that it wasn't was quite good fun. I thought, I know that was only sort of a, um, a, a light-hearted look at, at the gem business, but it, it seemed that there was a lot in there that was quite truthful. So um, I can only say, like everything else, it's probably had its um, fair share of myth that's made it feel like it's unlucky. Um, I, I personally, I, I'm sure Jeffrey would agree, I think they're an incredible stone. The fact that it has got so much going on in there um, is enough for me to want to work with it and I think for people to wear it. So um, I want to look at it a bit more positively, but it comes with a bit of baggage. Do we still kind of carry stones to make us feel a little better as we face hazards of life? Are we still kind of superstitious about, about it? Do you think there's that sense of paganism that's carried down the centuries that we all want to believe in stones? I, I think that's true. You know, I, it may seem an odd thing as a scientist to say, yeah, I think stones do have a, a certain emotional or powerful effect on us. And I think, you know, the one thing that you constantly see is, you know, these stones can give people such great pleasure. I mean, it's never an unemotional experience to see a gemstone or to wear one or to get some, you know, get one as a gift. You know, there's there's always this this sense of, of emotion that, that goes along with that. And I think that they do make us feel good. And I think, you know, when, I think it's one of the reasons why, you know, maybe there has always been this, this sort of sense of gems having a certain power or healing sense to them or whatever. I mean, they are, they're different. They, the way that the light reflects off of them, the colors, they do tend to please us. And, and I think when something makes you feel better, perhaps, you know, emotionally, the aches and pains go away a bit, the troubles of life go away a little bit. And, you know, if that's a healing effect, well, then I'm all for it. You know, so be it. That's, that's, that's a good thing. And, you know, part of the reason I think people do buy them and wear them is because they, it, it makes them feel maybe more important. It just maybe makes them feel better. They feel they just enjoy having this beautiful thing from the earth, from nature. It sort of connects them back to the earth, you know, something that they own and they can wear. I think all of those are, are legitimate reasons why, why gems um, are, you know, important to us and why they do make a difference to us. I think gems have a certain personality. I mean, to me, you know, if I had to, you know, had to say, well, what attracts me about a stone? I like a stone that has a certain personality to it. And some gems you look at that kind of just lay there. And others, you, you know, as soon as you pick it up, and you mentioned opals. I mean, every opal, right? It's like an individual person, you know, there's no two alike. And I think it's one reason why maybe opals conjure up a certain emotion or a certain sense of right or wrong or good or bad more than some others because there is so much going on in an opal. You know, you can almost see whatever it is you want to see in a given opal, and some will interpret that one way. It's like looking at a painting. You know, people, some will look at it and get really excited, and others look at it and get really depressed. And, you know, it's just, I think, you know, opals behave a little bit the same way because they are so different from one another. But I think they make us feel good. 
You know, and the other thing is it's sort of a shared experience. You know, several people can all look at the gem or look at that ring you're wearing or whatever, and together you kind of ooh and ah and sharing it. And so, you know, having something that, that is, you know, a sort of a public way of, of sharing something you find beautiful and special is is also really important. And I think the jeweler, of course, has a lot to do with that, how it's presented. how, And, you know, you get this sort of, symb- you know, in the best case is the symbiosis between the gem and the piece of jewelry and... You know, there is there is a certain magic there. You know, it's it's something that uh, you know does have a power to it. I'd hate to have to kind of explain it, but I certainly enjoy it. And we often hear that certain stones are running out, or that the mine is going to has only a couple more years to go. Stephen, I wondered if there's any stone that you think is becoming very rare that we should all sort of buy now, that. Um, because we'll be disappointed later on because it's not going to be around. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, in, in, a, in a relatively short period, you know, things like a Pariba tourmaline, for example, you know, I, I think it, it, when I first was sort of started to be exposed to a more exotic gem of which that fell into the category outside of, you know, sort of diamond emerald, you know, the usual suspects was was something which had this... It's sort of quite extraordinary value. And of course, I mean, my God, you, you, you're mesmerized by it. You know, it's this sort of bright, bright neon blue. And, and then before you knew it, the actual mine, <laughs> the, the, the real mine in Brazil is running out. So it was something that was finite. Now, you know, there are other pockets that get found, but it's still a very rare gem and a, an extraordinary gem. So that for sure is something you'd say, well, it's kind of up to the person if they should buy it now. It's certainly not going to be around uh, for for that much longer because I think the way that science is right now, you know, there's a much better idea of where things might occur. And I think some of these um, types of stones, you'd sort of say, well, there's a reason why tanzanite has only been found in this one place on the planet is because it's highly unlikely they're going to find it in another place. They would have found it by now. Um, and so so all of those, but I think they go back to why why are some of those gems in the Smithsonian? You know, why, why are they something that you say, you've got to look at this because it's extraordinary. And if it was really, really common, it wouldn't be extraordinary. It would be, you know, in every provincial museum around the world. <laughs> and and I, I guess that's, um, I, I think that's probably where I find my most excitement in a gem is I'm not really in the business of the multi-millions or, or anything, but I can still find something that's rare, that's um, unusual. And, um, and every now and again, just last year, just very quickly, I, I have one big collector of um, anything extraordinary. She's American, a very well-known family, and um, she's always got me on the hunt. And I found a 30, it was about a 34-carat unheated natural orange sapphire. I sent it to the GIA. They actually wrote back to me and said, this is possibly the most exciting stone we've seen yet this year. That was 2019. And so I knew... That was something extraordinary. I mean, I knew it was, but it was more than that. You know, it, it, this will, I hope this is the sort of thing that does end up in a place like the Smithsonian. It will be worn for a while because I've just made her a piece of jewellery. But, but, you know, nonetheless, <laughs> because they're amazing things and probably not what people would expect. You know, they're not expecting to say, 
you know, say, oh, this is an unheated orange sapphire. You know, that's, that's, there would have to be an expert to spot that one. But anything within all of our budgets? Oh, I see. Sorry, yes. I'm going to champion the spinel. I feel very, very much that the spinel is undervalued. It's extraordinary. Its hardness is the same as uh, as corundum, so beryl, sapphire. It comes in every colour you can imagine, which is always a bonus. I've been uh, buying and <laughs> mounting a lot of spinel. That's not the reason I'm saying it. I truly believe... There's everything, I'm interested to hear what Jeffrey thinks actually, there's every reason why Spinel should be a good investment. And it's affordable as long as you're not buying a big, bright red one right now, because that's sort of the top of the pile. There's also one in the, um, the state crown, isn't there? The Black Prince's that's Ruby, right. which is actually a Spinel. Um, yes. So there yes. is that history as well. So basically, I think what we're all saying is that any story attached to a stone is a positive story, even if it's got this Game of Thrones, bloodthirsty, violent past. It's still a good story because it is a story. And actually, we all have the opportunities to change the story of our stone, to make it what we want and to make it a positive story. So I just want to ask you both, if you wanted a sort of magical superpower which stone would you choose to wear every day to give you a magical superpower? Okay, Jeffrey, shall I go first? Go first, please, yeah, okay. <laughs> well, I think, you know, I'd love to think that there was a thing called kryptonite. I don't know if it really exists. Zultanite, there's so- Zultanite. <laughs> no, don't. You've spoiled my story because that's exactly what I was going to say. I was approached some years ago by some people who had an interest in what was then a new gem from Turkey and it had the, the superpower name of Zoltanite. And I, um, it, it's, um, it was a, a colour change stone. It went from sort of muddy green to muddy brown. But anyway, it doesn't matter. In, in its finest example, it did change from a bright green to a sort of a pinky brown. But I just for name only... I'm going to choose a Zoltanite, yeah. Hey, Jeffrey, what would yours be? Well, I think I would probably choose a Savorite Garnet because I just think they're spectacular. Um, And again, it's one of these stones that comes mostly from one locality, and most people are always surprised when they are looking at what you tell them then as a a green garnet because it's not what people are, are used to thinking about when they're thinking of garnets. And I've recently seen a couple of large, just spectacular stones that uh, are just the most luscious color. And uh, I think, uh, you know, if I was wearing one of those, I would feel somewhat empowered to uh, hopefully make a few positive changes in the world around me. Where would you wear it? (laughs) On your shoulder? The hilt of your sword? (laughs) Where would you wear it? I've always kind of liked these these big sort of uh, heavy necklaces that you see, you know, kings wearing around, you know, the, the front of them with a big stone in the front of it. And I'm sure Steve could probably design something, right, that would be just appropriate. I'm not, not on my head, but I want something I can kind of wear over the shoulders and have that stone right down in the front or front where everybody can see it. He wants a breastplate, Carol. That's what he's describing. It's a breastplate. It's <laughs> there you he's go. going to battle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, thank you very much for sharing your stories about legends and myths of stones. Thank you, Jeffrey. 
And we all look forward to coming back to the Smithsonian, hopefully after the summer. Stephen, thank you so much. And we'll see you with your Zoltanite um, (laughs) in London and um, your next collection. Look forward to it. Okay. Well, thank you both. It was great fun. Thank you for listening. For more information about this and other episodes of If Jules Could Talk, please go to our website, carolwalton.com slash podcasts. And if you liked it, please share it any way you can. You'll find us on Instagram, where you can see images of the jewellery we talk about, and please subscribe to the podcast feed on any of the usual platforms where you find your podcasts, where we'd love a rating and a comment. And don't forget to leave us any jewel-related questions because we'll answer those during each episode. Please join us again in two weeks for the next Jeweled Nugget when I'll be talking to one of my personal heroines, the great jewellery academic Diana Scaresbrick. We'll be talking about 700 years of diamond glamour, stately home jewels and neoclassical gems. And you won't want to miss what she has to say. Please join me again. Goodbye. If Jules Could Talk with Carol Walton is produced by Natasha Cowan, music and editing by Tim Thornton, graphics by Scott Bentley, illustration by Geordie Labanda, and you can find me on Instagram at Carol Walton. <laughs>